Hey everyone, my name is Alita Garcia, the VP of Advocacy at Forward.us, and I am on race and coronavirus because immigrants who come in all races are essential to our nation. Welcome to Race and Coronavirus. I'm Levi Sumagaisai. And I'm Patty Navalta. Our guest today is Alita Garcia. She is an attorney and vice president of advocacy at Forward.us, a bipartisan organization that advocates for common sense, criminal justice, and immigration reform. Welcome, Alita. Thanks for having me. Sure. Can you tell us briefly about Forward US and the work you do there? Sure. So Forward.us was founded about seven years ago. We are a national organization uh, that primarily focuses on two very uphill, hard objectives, one being legalizing the 11 million undocumented immigrants here in the United States, and the other being decarcerating America through all of its prison systems. And so that's what we spend our time doing, working with movement actors, impacted individuals, policymakers, media, and just trying to build the case, especially with folks in the American public who might not be as attuned to the day-to-day of these issues to build an understanding and, and, and hope from that be activated towards advocating for policy change. Great. Alita, thanks for being on. I want to ask you about DREAMers. The Center for American Progress estimates that 200,000 DACA recipients are engaged in some sort of essential work. What is the status of these DREAMers? And can you explain to our listeners what DREAMers are? Sure. So a DREAMer is a a term that was um, self-created from the immigrant youth movement uh, many years ago for individuals who arrived to the United States as children and are currently undocumented in the United States. And so there are approximately, there are probably a couple million dreamers in the United States. But in 2012, President Obama, after much advocacy from the immigrant rights movement, created the uh, DACA program. And so what this program did was allow those young people to sort of come forward to the government, fill out some paperwork, pay a fee, Um, And then they were given a two-year work permit and were provided protections from deportation, and they have to renew that work permit every two years. And so the Trump administration in 2017 ended the DACA program, but his attempt to do so has been tied up in litigation for the last um, two and a half years, and I'm actually working on that. And so it's before the Supreme Court right now. And maybe by the time this podcast airs, the Supreme Court's decision may have come down, but they're ultimately going to decide whether or not the DACA program stays intact. And so when we have these 200,000 DACA recipients who are in the essential workforce, that includes 30,000 healthcare workers that are nurses and doctors on the front lines of this crisis. It also includes parents of United States citizen children, about 256,000 U.S. citizen children have parents with DACA. And so it's it's pre-pandemic. It was a horrifying issue. And even more so right now when we are all interdependent um, to pull ourselves out of the coronavirus crisis, it only puts a highlight on the importance of, of ensuring that we keep the DACA population here and their families um, together. I want to ask you about this um, because you talk about pre-pandemic and now we're in the thick of it. So much has changed. So in terms of immigration, Where were we um, in terms of your priorities for immigration reform versus now? How did you have to pivot 
uh, the priorities because of the pandemic? Well, that's a it's a hard question. I would say that in the Trump administration, it has felt as someone who advocates for immigration issues that every week it's something new. So, you know, the first seven days of the Trump administration w- included the Muslim ban and the border wall announcement and making all undocumented people targeted for deportation. And so really, you know, it's been an every day, every week fight. Some things that have changed that have made it really difficult is they are actually using the CDC regulations to justify what they're doing to children who are asylum seekers showing up at our border without parents, so they're arriving unaccompanied. The administration is using the pandemic to actually just deport those children rather than take them into the Office of Refugee Resettlement and help them reunite with their families. And so, you know, that's just one example. Another thing that's happened is they announced this executive order on immigration, of which they've called it to be a 60-day temporary pause. But the reality is, as Stephen Miller has said in a private briefing to reporters, that they are intended on on this lasting for the long haul. And so when you create these sort of 60-day pauses, what you're essentially doing is giving yourself the opportunity to reauthorize something in 60 days. And so it's really scary to see how they're weaponizing the pandemic to dig into xenophobia and dig into Americans' fears. Because, you know, right now we're scared to hug our own parents if we haven't seen them. So the idea that we would accept a stranger who's from a place thousands of miles away, they're preying on our own anxieties rather than understanding if a child shows up at our doorstep, we don't put that child on a plane and drop them off in another country. We figure out where does that child need to go and reunite them with their families. And so pretty scary what's happening actually in the pandemic world and how we've had to adjust is also figuring out how we can connect the dots to folks who are also really overwhelmed in their own lives. America is in an entire societal realignment. So getting you know folks to advocate beyond their own circumstance and to recognize that it's all one circumstance is, is a challenging exercise. Yeah, you actually answered what was going to be my next question, which was whether you felt the Trump administration was sort of weaponizing this pandemic. What would you say to people who then point out that other countries are also closing their borders because of this pandemic? Well, I would say that one, those countries shouldn't be doing it too we should be driven by public health standards. Mm -hmm. And so if we're driven by public health standards, it's really common sense that things like keeping asylum seekers stuck in detention bunks in small crowded rooms of 100 people, leaving them to get sick and potentially die is not following public health standards. And so where when it comes to closing off your borders and letting and not letting other people in i think that we should be thinking about the intent around the policy and if it's driven by public health i think this administration has a record enough from the very first days of its existence that their entire apparatus is built on white nationalism and trying to stop new immigrants from coming to the united states and destabilize the lives of immigrants here to push them out and so When you know that that's the intent, we can't just accept that this is good public policy because they've demonstrated time and time again that these are the same policies that they actually tried to push in the Congress two years ago and failed at. They're just putting them in in this executive order now. The other thing that I think some textures and where you see this popping up is when we look at the HEROES Act that the Democratic House just put forward and, and that they're voting on today, 
the fight that Mitch McConnell is picking is that Nancy Pelosi, and my hands are in quotes for those that are listening, Nancy Pelosi is using this bill to give free taxpayer money to the quote-unquote illegal immigrants. And what those provisions were about are undocumented immigrants who have something called an I-10, who every year pay their taxes into the United States government, or United States citizen children or spouses of undocumented people who have been discriminated against in this bill, not receiving aid. And that's what they're choosing to weaponize. And so I think we should be eyes wide open that this administration and the Republican Senate are very focused on politicizing this rather than prioritizing the public health. If I'm in California, agriculture is an enormous industry here in California. About 70% of the agricultural workers in the United States are undocumented. I am in gratitude that farm workers are out there picking food that we are still able to eat in this pandemic and the food chain still exists. But we should not be leaving farm workers to suffer just because they lack status when they're showing up for us in this moment. The same for the meatpacking industry. I read some crazy stats yesterday about how many meatpacking plants have turned into hotbeds across the country. The people in those plants are immigrants and a ton of them are undocumented. And so if we want to get out of the pandemic, we need to adjust our, you know, if we're distracted by the politics of the situation, we need to adjust our hearts and compassion and understand that we are all in this together. And the only way we will all get healthy is if we protect everyone who's here, regardless of their circumstance. And so I guess those are my thoughts on that. You mentioned the detention centers and the the circumstances there. When the number of COVID cases started to spike, I thought immediately of those children who are being detained at the border and whose living conditions already put them at risk, both mentally and physically. So how has Forward US been monitoring that situation and advocating for them during the pandemic? So one thing that's happening right now is there's something called the Remain in Mexico program or Migrant Protection Protocols, which essentially what has happened is the Trump administration basically ended asylum, which is an international human right, by saying, if you show up at a port of entry, which is basically like a door for America, so like in Tijuana or in El Paso, we have these bridges that are ports of entry between Mexico and the United States. So if you show up there and you're seeking asylum, you're basically given a piece of paper and told to stay in Mexico until your court date. And so over 60,000 people have been put into that program And they're all living along the U.S.-Mexico border, subject to kidnapping, rape, extortion. They're living outdoors in refugee camps in Matamoros, living in tents. They're already malnourished and with weakened immune systems. And what you're seeing is some parents are thinking, I'm going to die or my children are going to die if I stay here. My children need to go ahead because my sister lives in the United States, my cousin lives in the United States, my husband lives in the United States. And so children have shown up unaccompanied and then were put into facilities in the United States. And now the U.S. government is not releasing those children to the family member in the United States. What they're trying to do is to deport those children, not even to Mexico where the parent is, back to their home country without their parents. And so one of the things that we've been doing is trying to elevate those stories. There's um, a partner of ours, the Justice Action Center, who has been filing litigation to try to protect these children. 
and get them released. And so we actually had a great success over the last two weeks. We helped get two families reunited. And so what we're trying to do is like coordinate with legal service providers. We're all hustling in this moment because we can't actually be in person together. You can't go like stage the same protest that we used to stage. You know, we're trying to find innovative ways to collaborate, but that's just one way that we're trying to elevate what's happening at the border is that family separation, it didn't go away. It's just showing itself in new forms and, and trying to find ways to amplify the dignity of these families and, and make it clear that we're not going to stand for this country continuing to separate families in our name and in this guise of it being for our public health. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other industries that we haven't mentioned yet? You did mention agriculture. We talked a little bit about the healthcare industry being affected by the immigration policies, right? What other industries will be affected by the limitation on immigration because of this crisis? I I was a tech reporter, so I can think about H-1B visa holders and how dependent the U.S. tech industry has been on them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yes. It's a great question. So there have actually been conversations from Republican policymakers in the White House around trying to go after the H-1B program next. So an H-1B visa, for folks who don't know the alphabet soup of immigrant visas in the United States, is essentially someone who comes to the United States to work And in a field, a lot of folks work in tech, but in sort of a technical field, a lot of folks also first came to the United States and studied in college. And then the visa that allowed them to pursue their professional career in the United States after college was the H-1B visa. A lot of folks on H-1B visas have actually lived in the United States for an incredibly long period of time and are stuck in our broken system and the green card backlog. And so they're, you know, intending on living their lives in the long term in America, but are stuck in this very temporary existence of waiting until green cards open up. And so tech will be dramatically impacted if they shut down H-1Bs. Colleges and university systems, a lot of the ability for, I had financial aid support when I went to college. A lot of the financial aid support that colleges are able to provide American citizens is actually driven by how much they charge non-citizens to attend colleges and universities. You'll see research institutions greatly impacted. But we are also, to go back to the healthcare field, I think we underappreciate how many immigrants are in the healthcare field. It's something almost like one in five people in healthcare are an immigrant. Yeah, I saw um, a recent NBC News story that, and it had the stat that that was really interesting to me that nearly a quarter of licensed U.S. physicians are immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where a lot of them end up working are in rural areas in America that are under resourced in their healthcare system. And I think you know if you look at the projections for ten and fifteen years from now the number of nurses and doctors that we're going to need to meet that time, we're not on track domestically to meet those needs. And so immigrants are critically vital to our healthcare system. And the last thing that I would want to say on this front from like an industry perspective, I think we don't actually think of them as an industry, but we should, which is like mom and pop, small business retail as a job creator in in local communities across America, not just immigrant wealth and Latino wealth, but Black wealth in this moment in terms of small business ownership is 
potentially being eradicated when you look at the number of people who have been able to access the loan program from the federal government and who who have been not, there's clear discrimination happening in these bank practices as to who's been able to access the coaching to access these funds. And so it's really scary. And I think we oftentimes don't think about the small business community as like an economic force as the same as like hotels and tourism and ag and tech and uh, these other like marquee industries that are job creators in America. Yeah, we actually will be having a small business owner who's an immigrant on in the next couple of podcasts. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And we're definitely looking into how those small businesses are being, whether they're, they're getting the PPP loans. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too, because you've touched on this when we talk about the agricultural workers and and the people in the meatpacking industry, and even with the immigrant doctors being essential, what are your thoughts on the fact that many of the workers who have been deemed as essential are also labeled illegal? So it's like, we don't want you here, but we need you. And has that been able to open up the conversation more in terms of people who have been hardliners against common sense immigration reform? I think it is my hope that people's compassion and ability to recognize our interconnectedness during this period has expanded. I do have fears that the conversation around this pandemic has now been politicized in ways that might put people back into their corners versus how we felt at the beginning of this when it was like we were all leaning on each other and people were like going outside to cheer for their healthcare workers late at night and like writing thank you on their sidewalks to their sanitation workers and just recognizing people that were in front of them doing this work. My concern now when you see things like, you know, these protests at state capitals and people thinking that it's them executing their freedoms by going to the bar and not covering their face with a mask, even though that's what the CDC recommends, that that is now making them a patriot. I worry that this is going to start to turn into a dark nationalist like (laughs) space that is not healthy for us collectively. And I think also... I've been talking about the Latino community because I'm Mexican-American a lot, but when you look at how many incidences of discrimination and hate have been directed to the Asian-American Pacific Islander community during this time, when you see our president question and badger an Asian-American reporter at the White House briefing and ask her to go ask China things, like that stuff, we, we don't know how that will culturally influence us. And so I do have hope and I'll continue to work on this and hope that others will also and and encourage others to see it this way in that there are heroes among us. (laughs) It wasn't the fancy elites that people like me who get to work from home on their computers on conference calls all days that were the heroes of this moment. The heroes of this moment were the grocery workers, the delivery folks, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the farm workers. But I also just want to say that it's not the job of an immigrant to like save white people or citizens' lives in order to justify their existence in the United States. Like, sure, people are heroes, but that should not be the deserving or determinative factor as to whether or not we should accept people into our society. But we all grew up in the movies and everyone likes a protagonist. And so maybe maybe this will open people's hearts a little bit more. So I remain hopeful, but it, it's with a very cautious lens. Well, speaking of speaking of remaining hopeful, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously this conversation has been sort of heavy and we've talked about a lot of bad news and discouraging 
things. Can you point to anything encouraging or optimistic that has to do with immigration and this crisis? Sure. I'd like to point to people. I'm inspired by Jesus Contreras, who is a DACA recipient EMT in Houston, Texas, who he said something so moving the other day on television, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, when I get a call to go help someone in the emergency response, or when they call the call center and I pick up that emergency call, I don't ask someone if they're a Republican or a Democrat or if they want to deport dreamers. I'm there to be my community leader and a helper and to show up. And and it's just my hope that maybe one day people will see me in the same way. And he also talked about how when he wears his EMT uniform, he gets a nod of respect and appreciation and almost validation and authority. But when he's wearing his I am an immigrant shirt, he doesn't get the same energy from human beings. They don't look him in the eye in the same way. And he has hope for America to see him as an equal in whatever shirt or uniform that he is wearing. And I just thought that that was so demonstrative of the gap that we need to fill as a society. And hopeful in that someone that young can be that attuned and have that much vision for for the collective we and in where we need to improve. And so my hope remains in people like Jesus and people like Hina Navid, who's a foster care nurse in you know in the epicenter in, in New York City, and Denise Rojas, who's a med student who's volunteering at a med clinic and helping people go through telehealth work, work. And, you know, these three DACA recipients, they have an entire government trying to determine whether or not their existence is valid in the United States. And every single day they are showing up more, you know, than most people in my life. And it hurts my heart that we're at a stage where they might be at risk of deportation. But I remain hopeful and confident that the immigrant youth movement will rise from whatever the Supreme Court decides and and pave their own path forward. And so that's where my hope remains is just watching people persevere and believe in, in the better version of us that could exist. Fascinating. Thank you. Alita, you're such a rich source of information and you're so valuable in this issue of immigration and, and for advocacy. And we appreciate your time and your Thanks knowledge. For me. It's so nice to be here. And uh Thank you for telling these stories. It's been frustrating to watch the response and to see people have to go through an uphill battle to be heard in this pandemic. And so I think the conversation you all are starting is incredibly important. Thank you you so much, Alita. Bye. Bye. That was really interesting. One thing that stuck out to me as she was talking about the EMT person who said that people look at him differently depending on what he's wearing. That stood out to me. I'm very close to someone who used to wear a uniform and who no longer does mm-hmm. and is looked at differently. So that's yeah. me. Yeah, it's, it's incredible to me that, I mean, this is someone who goes to testify before Congress and takes on those fights that go to the Supreme Court, but she remembers specific people and their stories and she is deeply impacted by them. And I think that's what makes her such a great advocate is because she truly cares. And these stories about how children are now turned away in the name of health, health protection in the United States, I think is 
is horrendous. You know, it was happening before the pandemic, as she said, but now it's happening under the guise of protecting Americans' health. And I think that's just something that cannot fly under the radar and that we have to um, keep telling these stories about. Yeah. One last thing. The other thing that we talked about was how nearly a quarter of licensed doctors in the U.S. are immigrants. And the story that I read as I was preparing for this interview with Alita was of a doctor who is on an H-1B visa who is preparing to be deported. That just struck me as really interesting and so ironic considering the fact that we need that doctor right now during this pandemic. Right. As Lolita said, these three DACA uh, participants that she pointed out, their fate is in this administration's hands, an administration that doesn't want them here, and yet they're showing up on a daily basis more so than average people that we know. So it's heartbreaking. Yeah. On that note, Tune in to our next podcast. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Visit us on raceandcoronavirus.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.